And there you go, not our normal intro music there for Fuzzy Logic, but pretty exciting just the same. And we're going to kick off with some This Day's Insights. My name is Rod, and joining me in the studio is my friend Alice Ryder. G'day, Alice. Good morning, Rod. You just got back from Queensland, I understand. I have. At 10.30 last night, left 28 degrees, arrived in one degree. So it's a bit of a jump, but we'll survive, hopefully. (laughs) Lots of fun. Well, we're going to kick off with some This Day in Science. And what have we got? Well, we might think that electronic cars are all the rage and very, very trendy and new and modern, but it turns out that they're not, because the first electronic automobile was actually demonstrated in Boston in America today in 1888. Wow, that goes a long way further back than you might have thought. A long way further than I would have thought, definitely. I wonder what sort of batteries they use that were lead acid, I would guess, of some sort. Some sort. There were six batteries. Um, The interesting thing, though, when when I hear about an electronic automobile, I guess I think of a great, big, exciting car. It wasn't quite that flash, I have to confess. It was actually an electronic tricycle. Oh, But still, automobile and a very, very long time ago, so good on them. Got to start simple with simple things. And another story about electricity from a source we might not have uh, anticipated. Certainly. Well, in 1888, we were pioneering the use of electric automobiles, but obviously making electricity, we need need to burn things, we need to power our electricity and our electronic products somehow and trying to find renewable electricity is really important but scientists just recently have found a really novel way of creating electricity now for those of you who are still eating breakfast and having a cup of tea you may want to just take a deep breath for a moment because it's a tiny bit rude it's actually batteries that are powered by urine So the idea is that some scientists uh, at the University of Bristol have created batteries that are powered by urine. Inside the batteries, there are tiny bacteria, and those bacteria break down the urine or eat the urine, and in the process, they generate electricity. At the moment, this battery is about the size of a car battery, so it's not little, and it's only producing enough electricity to power a mobile phone to surf the internet and send text messages and make short phone calls. But they're looking at refining this technology and hopefully moving on to creating small batteries that can be based in the house and used to power household items with something that otherwise would be waste. Oh, so that's so fantastic. The actual power generation device is inside the urinal device itself. It's not something you have to carry around in your pocket like... I guess it puts new meaning into the words you're going to piss in somebody's pocket, hey? <laughs> it does indeed. It could be a little bit smelly. I think from my reading, the idea is that these would be based in the house and that we could use recycling because, uh, as a scientist said, the beauty of this fuel source of urine is that we're not relying on erratic nature of the wind and the sun and we're not using non-renewable resources. So urine is something that is very much renewable. It's being made anyway and it's nice and reliably well, produced. I, I remember listening to a really interesting presentation by... I can't remember his name, but he comes from the Rocky Mountains Institute in the United States, and they're looking at uh, renewable sources of energy and uh, sustainability and so on. And he said, we've got to get away from this idea of cradle to grave. We should start talking, you know, for our products, like dig it out of the ground and then stick it in a hole when we've done with it. He talked about cradle to cradle. (laughs) Recycling in a really big way. So you just reuse and recycle and 
when you think about the amount of resources that go into our landfill or get flushed down the rivers, it's really just insane, isn't it? Well, that's it. If this is a product that contains lots of different nutrients that are wasteful and in some cases even cause damage if we end up with build-ups of too too many nutrients and chemicals, we may as well be using this product that we all create for something useful. Well, that's that's a nice lead-in to the next story, which is about a concrete barge, which is a date from this day in science history. And in 1980, the first concrete barge was launched in New York. Its hull was made of steel reinforced concrete by the Fournier, a concrete shipbuilding company, pardon my pronunciation, and it was designed to carry oil. The idea of a boat being made out of concrete is just so bizarre, I had to include that one. But cradle to grave, or cradle to cradle, we did a column in the Canberra Times a while back about using fly ash to form concrete. Now, fly ash is the byproduct, fairly unpleasant byproduct, of power generation, coal-fired power stations. Oh, so not flies like buzzing flies? No, no, no. And this stuff just goes into big... They pile it up into a big heap. And then what do you do with it? Well, they've found ways of making it into uh, into concrete, using to replace the... Uh, the sand and, and the sand, I think it is, memory? The sand and gravel and gritty uh, bits yeah, of the Not concrete. the gravel, but the sand. The uh, finer stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Fantastic stuff to be investigating and something that will need to be investigated well into the future, obviously. On the topic of ships, we've also got a This Day in History that's related to the ocean. In 1866, so even earlier than the very exciting electronic tricycle, uh, Cyrus Field succeeded after two fairly spectacularly failed events I'm sad to say in laying the first underwater telegraph cable from North America to Europe so across the Atlantic Ocean and it was almost 1700 miles long that's a very very long way by that's anyone's a lot books of wire. it's hard to conceive how you could do that and what it said he had three goes at doing it before it finally they finally made it work Yes, so he had two two goes with this variety of cabling and by the looks of things, three goes before that with copper cabling. Unfortunately, it kept breaking and obviously you can imagine the logistics and the engineering of getting uh, a relatively thin piece of cable stretched over that distance, not being damaged by waves, not being damaged on the sea floor. Uh, but they successfully laid the cable along the sandy bottom of the North Atlantic, so fairly high up, and that was obviously very, very important in terms of communicating from those amazingly different continents, but continents that relied on each other very strongly. Well, Alice, that's that's a great lead-in to our next segment, which is going to be an interview with a researcher from NICTA, who are the ICT research labs uh, based in Australia, Canberra, Sydney, uh, Melbourne, right across Australia, doing really interesting things. And our next guest, when we come back from this track, is looking at ways of supplying the fundamental things that we expect when we get up in the morning. So I started off the show by saying, what did you have for breakfast? And what did you have for breakfast? Where did your breakfast come from? Or when we're on the telephone, how is it that such a thing is actually possible? There's all of these things that our civilization delivers to us in this seamless way that we don't even notice is happening. And it's, you know, the analogy of the, the swan gliding gracefully across the lake. And all above is serene and beautiful, but underneath its feet are pedalling like mad <laughs> in the muck and in the mud. Well, it all doesn't happen magically. So when we come back, we're going to be talking to our guest here on Fuzzy Logic. Now, I've got a special track for you today. This is a piece of music from a CD written, uh, uh, produced by a friend of mine. And the track 
or the album rather is called Grayling. The track is called Folk Off, and the artist is Nelson Walcom here on Two Double X. Nelson Walkham, a friend of mine who produced that album called Grayling, and the track was called Folk Off here on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And our guest now is uh, Pascal Hentenrich, who is a research leader of the optimization group at NICTA, the IT uh, Research and Development Labs. Hello, Pascal, you can hear me fine? Yes, good morning, Rod. Thank you for having me. And uh, you should be able to hear Alice as well. Okay, so now let's kick off with your background and what your main role is in NICTA Pascal. So I've given a sort of a, a, a crude introduction by saying that uh, you're interested in logistics. and But it's more than just that, isn't it? What, what, what do you do? So, 
so I'm uh, essentially the group leader of the optimization group in NICTA, which is the national ICT center in uh, in Australia. And optimization is kind of a it's it's a, it's an important field, but it's it's essentially a field that very few people know about. It's basically in the background. It's a very well kept secret. But this is essentially a field that is running, you know, all the logistic and supply chain systems. It's running. Uh, power system is running a variety of infrastructure all, all over, you know, everywhere. And so as we are speaking, there are, you know, a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of optimization problems that are being solved all around the world. And if these problems wouldn't be solved, you know, the world would just come to an, uh, to a complete stop. And so essentially what, what the group that I'm leading is doing is trying to solve these problems better and better. Uh, making sure that things are running more efficiently, that uh, they are more productive, they cost less. And so the group that, you know, uh, I'm leading is basically doing research from the fundamental side to, to the very applied side. So uh-huh. we, we do fundamental research in a variety of topics, and then we try to apply them to a, a number of grand challenges that are basically being faced by our society. Now, I'm, I'm wondering, there's, there's a bit of a story that goes something like, or a saying, that doing a good job is like wetting your pants in a dark suit. You get a warm feeling, but nobody seems to notice. So do, do you think it's the case that we, we just take it for granted, that all of these things are delivered to our doorstep, that you and I, we went to our respective kitchen cupboards in the morning and we pulled out a box of cereal and somehow, somehow it got there? So I think it's, it's, it's very right. And so I think it's, it's, yeah. So I, and it's, it's an interesting story because in a sense, I'm always trying to tell people, you know, you know, all the things that have to happen for a plane to actually to take off. And people are very surprised when you tell them that, you know, you have to allocate the right planes to the right, you know, routes. You have to allocate the right crews to the right planes. You have to make sure that the plane has a gate when it lands, that actually it has a slot in which it can actually fly. And all these things have to be solved. And these are very difficult problems to solve. People expand their careers. And this is another example. The box of cereals that actually I ate this morning, uh, part of it at least, uh, it's also the same thing. You know, it has to get to the supermarket, you know, in a sufficiently, you know, efficient fashion that people can, you know, make profit out of it and, and have a business out of it. And once again, there are a lot of inter- interesting you know, optimization, logistics, you know, problems behind the scene on how to actually do that. And that's what we spend our lives. Nobody knows what we are doing, but, you know, I think it would be a big difference if all these optimization problems would not be solved. So, so, <laughs> so, so can you give us some examples, Pascal, of the sort of problems that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, so I think we work on... Uh, we work on problems in logistics, and I'm going to tell you a, a, a couple of them. And we work also on problems in uh, power system, and we work in problems in uh, in uh, uh, natural disaster uh, and disaster management. So let me give you a, one of the problems that we looked at uh, in the logistics space. So, so one of the big issues with perishable food, for instance, and so we worked on on bread deliveries and so on, is the fact that you you have you 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 don't have six months to actually deliver the goods, right? So it has to be delivered fresh. So you have to make sure that it gets from the place where you, you know you bake it to the to the to the to the customers as efficiently as possible. So what we looked at is how can we make sure that you know these companies whose logistic costs are pretty high can can stay efficient, you know can 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 stay low. And they, they still make profit. And so this is essentially, I think, you know, in, in, the, in the kind of things we were looking at, so I think it was, you know, about 60,000 deliveries per day. And you have to make sure that the, all these 
you know, piece of, of bread get to the right place at the right time. And so we were looking at different channels on how actually to do that such that you maximize the profit of the companies and, and have the level of, of satisfaction for the customers uh, that, that, that people expect. So that's one of the problems we work on. Uh, the other things that the, another problem that we work on is essentially looking at public transportation these days. So, so public transportation historically has been, you know, you, you find your bus lines, your, you know, your train lines and so on, and you organize them in a very static fashion. But we live in a world now where we have a lot of information, right? So we're talking on the phone, we, we can text anytime. So people have a lot, can communicate a lot more information. So can we exploit that such that we have a much more dynamic you know, public transportation system where you reduce the waiting time, you, you reduce, you, you increase the frequencies and at the same time reducing the cost. And the, the way you look at these things is that you want to have a, a different mix of, of, you know, scheduled lines or more dynamic shuttles and things like this. This is the kind of problems we are looking at in that space in public transportation. Is that making sense? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, how much uh, opportunity, how much room do we have to improve? These systems are I would guess, without knowing better, reasonably efficient to begin with. Can, uh, is there a lot of headroom to improve? Oh, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. So, so I think one of the things that you have to understand is that in some of these areas, five percent is a really big number. So, for instance, in the perishable food business, you know, you know, saving five to twenty to twenty percent is a huge number. And so, these are the numbers that we can actually deliver on some of these problems. In the public transportation systems, I think you can expect things sometimes. Uh, Let's say on a Saturday, for instance, you can expect to decrease the, and we have results along those lines, basically de decreasing the waiting time by, you know, 50%, reducing the cost, you know, also in, you know, in the 20% ranges. And so it's, it, we are talking about making a big difference for the people and also uh, making a big difference from a cost, you know, uh, standpoint. So there, are a lot of, there are a lot of possibilities there. Yes, you remind me of a story I read a little while ago about improving the or reducing the amount of aluminium that goes into a soft drink can. And if they could shave uh, half a gram off the weight of the aluminium can, that translated to a huge number of grams, uh, a huge resource shaving for the soft drink manufacturer. So, is it, so these small percentages make a big difference overall when you multiply them out. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So let me give you another example in a very different area. But this is a power system, energy system, electricity, right? So in, in that space... The, some of the, the, the big energy companies are very interested in having a very, very accurate prediction of the load, you know, the short term, in the next 10, 15, 30 minutes. And there, you know, we are not, to, we are not even talking about a percent. We are talking about half of a percent and so on. That's the, that's the kind of accuracy that they want. And then that makes, that translate to a lot of, you know, uh, savings for them or more profit and things like this. So, so sometimes these are very tiny numbers, but they make a very big difference down the line. So the power system, for instance, is also one of the big areas in which we are working because there are a lot of challenges in this area these days. So what, what, are, the, what are the main principles that you're working to? One, one of them I think you've just referred to or, or implied is smoothing out delivery so that you, don't, you can manage the peaks and troughs a bit better. Is that one? But what, what other principles are you working to? So I think that... So so I think when you look at when when you look at the big picture, big picture of what we are trying to do. So what we are really trying to look at is very complex infrastructures, and trying to optimize them, such that you you, you smooth these peaks, 
you basically also reduce uncertainty tremendously. So a lot of the lot of the world now is less predictable than it used to to be. And and what we are trying to do is to make sure that you know we can actually use you know reduce that uncertainty and take it into account such that you have resilient plans, you have resilient you know solutions and robust solution across these uncertainties. So that's also a big principle for us. How can you make you know the various supply chains or you know electricity delivery much more resilient? So can I ask what sort of tools do you use to figure these things out? Is it heavily based in mathematics or in or in modeling processes or what 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 sort of tools do you use to gather this information together and to oh, come up with oh, ideas? Oh great question. I could you know, I could talk for hours about this. So so I think you know the, the main message that I, I, I'd like to say about this is that it's very multidisciplinary. So I come from a computer science background, but my education was also in applied math, economics, and, 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 other, and other areas. But what you see is that for these kinds of problems, what you need to understand is not only very sophisticated, you know, algorithm, com- you know, computer science, but also you need the mathematics, and you also need to understand the various, you know, the, the various scientific disciplines and engineering disciplines. So let's say when we work on, you know, uh, when we work on transportation system, we need to understand the algorithm, the computer science aspect, but we need also to understand the behavior of these systems globally, the, the mathematics that's basically, you know, uh, ruling those, those, those infrastructure. The same thing in power system. You need to understand the physics because you are optimizing over the physical laws. So essentially, you know, we, we try to do, you know, it's basically bringing a computational angle to many of the existing engineering and scientific disciplines. That's what we are really doing. Does that, does that answer the question? Uh, yes, indeed. And so does that mean that you have some kind of model of the way the system works? You've got an input or a bunch of inputs. You've got some things going, some process going on internally, and then you've got some outputs. Is that the sort of thing that you're doing? Yeah, so, so you, have, you have always a model of reality, okay? And that model of reality is going to model the physical law or, the, you know, an infrastructure. It's going to also model the, the basic decisions that you can take. And obviously, you make some approximation, and then essentially you use that model with the, the input data input, which is coming either real time or you know it's, it's, it's the static data, and then you get an output, which is basically a set of recommendations. What do you have to do? What are what are basically the decisions that you have to make at any one time? You know, where do you dispatch this truck, or you know, which generator is going to dispatch that electricity for this particular neighborhood, and things like this. Exactly. But it's a very dynamic and continuous process, right? Because things happen, and therefore you have to things happen, and then you have to react. You know, if a if a plane you know is broken, you have to replace it by another one. Where do you find a new one, and so on and so forth? Okay, so these these models are some kind of simulation of how we predict the world is going to behave. How complicated are they? Oh, they're very complicated. So uh, essentially, some of these models have millions and millions of variables. They would they would be completely outside, you know, the, uh, the capability of a human to solve. On the other hand, the humans have an intuition about these things. So in a sense, what what the models are doing is giving it generally a lot. A lot of these are automated, but a, a lot of them also, when the decisions are really important, have humans in the loop. And and essentially, what you have is you produce these recommendations, and humans are very good in in spotting, you know, the various patterns and and detecting anomalies if they are some of them and so essentially they are very complicated but generally the, the output can be visualized in some fashion and people can find out you know uh, oh does this make sense and so on and so forth so the mechanics of the model are quite complicated is yeah. there a lot of data involved is there a lot of heavy duty processing required in order to work those models 
Yeah, so this is a great question. So I think some of the problems we are solving uh, are some of the most complicated problems in computer science. In a sense, you, what you have to think about is that nobody really knows how to solve them. There is no really good, you know, single algorithm to solve them all. So in practice, what you have to do, so basically they take exponential time. Exponential means, you know, if you, if you increase the size of the problem by one, you may double the, the, the execution time. So you have to become very clever in how you design this algorithm. And so we have been spending like 50, 60 years just trying to, you know, push this exponential such that you can solve practical problems. But they are very, very difficult. So they are very computationally intensive. And now because of all these data that is available out there, they have also to operate over a massive amount of data. And so in a sense, now we have the, these two aspects, a lot of data to process in, in, you know, real time or close to real time. And at the same time, we have these very computationally intensive problems to solve. So for us, computer scientists, it's like a gold mine of problems to solve. So it's really interesting, really, really interesting. So you need really big, powerful computers working flat out, and hence your requirement to optimize these algorithms as well as as much as you can in order to get the processing through them. Is that right? Yeah. So, so it's it's more than just computer sheer computer power. It's also a lot of ingenuity in how you design the algorithm, or you exploit the mathematics, or you exploit the physics, and so on. And obviously, you know, these days we, we like to use parallel computing, you know, the GPUs that are available for actually speeding up these computations. Uh, for instance, to give you an example, flood simulation now these days, you know, it's about, you know, 50 to 100 times faster than it used to be like three or four years ago, just because we can exploit some of the computational resources that are available out there. At the same time, some of the algorithms that we have designed in the, in the past have, have been you know, like thousands of times faster because we exploit better structure inside, inside the algorithm. We make them smarter, in a sense. We exploit more of the structure of the problem. Uh, okay. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. So there, are, there are these two facets. You know, how can you actually be clever in how you solve the problem? And then how can you use a computer in a smarter way to actually, you know, implement your algorithm? Yes, was I hope I'm not too technical here. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Uh, was speaking of heavy-duty processing power, you are listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Radio 2 X. We're going to break to a quick track, and this one is another one from the album I referred to earlier, my friend Nelson Walcom, and the album is called Grayling. It's quite deep and dark music. And our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is Pascal Hentenrick, who is a who is the research leader of the optimization group at NICTA and talking via phone from Melbourne. Sorry, but I can never be 
That was Never Be, the fairly dark and gloomy kind of lyrics from the CD called Grailing Crocodiles and Other People by Nelson Walcombe. And you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And our guest today with Alice and myself is Pascal Hentenrick, who is the research leader of the optimization group at NICTA. Now, before the track, Pascal, you used the word resilience. Now, I see a really strong tension between resilience and optimization, between how fast and how quickly you can do something and how safely you can do it. Do you, do you have to trade off that tension in the models that you're working with? So this is a great question, Rob. Uh, it's, it's a topic that is... That is become very popular now because a lot of the focus in, in historically has been on on optimizing on just-in-time manufacturing you know everything you know done very efficiently and one of the things that happened after you know the the, the tsunami in in Japan is that some of the plants that uh, the car manufacturer in Japan had were basically shut down for a couple of months because they had this just-in-time you know process processes that they were using and some of the links on those on on this in the supply chain were broken and so for a couple of months nothing could actually they, they could not deliver the right parts to build the car you have to understand that the car is about twenty thousand pieces if you miss in some of them you can't actually build the car and so they basically lost you know something which is up you know evaluated to about twenty percent because they were just optimizing for efficiency so I think because of that, what people started looking at is how can we trade off efficiency and resilience? And it's an extremely difficult topic because, in a sense, when you have two objectives, it's much more difficult to find out, you know, where do you want to be? You know, in, how do you want to balance that? And so there is this an entire area of optimization, which is called, you know, multi-objective optimization, where you are basically trying to trade off and find the good compromise between these things. It's a very difficult topic, in a sense. So what are some of the things that you would do to maintain resilience? What are the things that a resilient system has? Okay, so let me give you an example on the power system. So in the power system, uh, so this is a big network, right? So 
shipping electricity from the generators to the consumers. And what you have to make sure in general is that there are multiple paths from the generators that, that are producing electricity to the consumers. There is not a single path because if there is a single path, you have a single point of failure. And if one of, one power line is, is broken, is, is damaged, then you can't supply the electricity. So they make sure that they have this, this criteria, which is N minus one reliability, which basically means you can shut down any lines or any generators, and there is still a way to sh ship electricity from one point to another, well, for, to the customers. And so this is the kind of properties that you want in this network. You want to make sure that if some events are happening, they will be resilient, they will still be able to function. And of course, what you want is to do that at the least cost, such that it doesn't cost too much to build your network, it doesn't cost too much to operate the network. Do, do, do you think that, in general, that our civilization has really compromised resilience? Like you mentioned, the uh, the earthquake and the tsunami, and I remember that the factories in uh, Kobe went off air after the uh, earthquake there because they had no they were using just in time manufacturing they had no fat they had no reserves so do you see that in general that we are exposed to to that kind of risk I think there is more uh, that, that used to be. Uh, the, the world is, is, is different, and uh, the, the world is especially much more integrated. So what happens, you know, in the last, these, these global supply chains have started to appear in the last, let's say, you know, 20 years, 15 years. And, and these global supply chains, are they, they are much bigger, they are much larger, there are many more points of failure. And in that sense, they are, they are more susceptible to actually failures. And that's what you see happening. And so you have this, it's always like, oh, we make it more efficient. Oh, but no, we are more vulnerable, so we have to make it more resilient. It's like, you know, you, you move from one space to the, to, to the next. And I think it's globalization that is, in a sense, make the systems a little bit more, uh, more unreliable. And, and people are now compensating for that. Um, uh, yeah, so I think that's one of the reasons, I believe. And in terms of that compromise between sort of resilience and efficiency and that decision of, yeah. of what weighting do we put on each of those, do you think that's a political decision or do you think that's a decision that should come from man from the manufacturers themselves or who should be in a position of power to make those decisions? Uh, this is a great question and a very difficult question to answer. I think, you know, it, you know and, and obviously the only thing that I can do here is giving you my personal personal opinion right so I'm, uh, and i think it's i think it has to come from different it has to come from different actors stakeholders right so i think the government you know governments have a role in general in putting guidelines such that you don't go too far you know companies cannot go too far in, into let's say more efficiency and less resilience i think a lot of companies these days are themselves realizing that they have to put these guidelines because their business can be really affected by you know, external events or, you know, uh, and, and they have to be more resilient themselves. So, so I think it's a combination of, you know, the companies realizing that they have to do that. Is the government making sure that there are safe guidelines to make sure that this doesn't happen because, you know, the entire economy can suffer? Uh, so it's not easy. It's not, it's not easy at all. But once again, one of the things that we can do is to build models and inform people. Uh, and this is actually one of the areas that I'm really fascinated by. So can we actually inform, you know, very high-level policy decisions to, to using very sophisticated scientific model and and you know models of how you know these these big complex you know systems are working and how people behave in those systems.
So, Pascal, we're we're talking about um, earthquakes and tsunamis a moment ago. Now, you're applying these techniques to disaster management. How how do they help in managing a disaster? I think the... I think, you know, uh, so, so I came to this area of disaster management uh, because of, of Katrina, the Hurricane Katrina in the United States. That was a very traumatic event in, uh, in the United States because the response was, was really, really bad. And so the United States reacted very strongly by saying we have to do something like this. We, have to, we are responsible and we need to, we are accountable. We need to actually do a much better job in reacting to these events. And what they realized is that Actually, optimization was something which, which was very important. You have to be able to do big logistic operations. You have to be able to restore your infrastructure quickly. You have also to be in a position to mitigate those things. And they came and they talked to, uh, to us and, and some of our partners at Los Alamos. And, and essentially what we built for them is a variety of tools to actually help them make those decisions. And for instance, you know, uh, during Hurricane Sandy and Irene's in the United States, you know, some of the software that we have built has been used for actually predicting how fast you can actually do power restoration, how you should do it, how best you can actually preposition your assets and things like that. Now, and it has made a tremendous difference in practice. In right. So I'm imagining you're not going to build these models and try and work it out at the time of the disaster. How do you do that and how do you try to predict what will happen and, and what sort of setting are you targeting these models for? Oh, very good question. So I think you, you work with a variety of things. So, so basically what we have is a description of the infrastructure. Let's say we talk about the power system and you want to minimize the size of a blackout. We know what the power system is. That's part of the input. The other thing that we typically know is that we know what the hurricane can do. So people have been very good in predicting what these hurricane or cyclones here in the southern hemispheres are, are basically doing. You know the tracks. You can see them coming, right? So, uh, as far as disasters are concerned, hurricane and cyclones are, uh, you know, are reasonable in the sense that you see them coming, so you can react to them. And hurricane, you know, prediction tracking and so on has improved by a factor of two. So what you could predict before in, you know, a, a, a day before, now you can predict two days before. So you see them coming. And so what you can start is trying. So that's the input that you have. You have your infrastructure. You have what the hurricane can do. How it can damage the infrastructure or it can, you know, close roads, you know, destroy, you know, power station or power lines and things like this. And now you are trying to position your assets such that, you know, when the hurricane or the cyclone hits, you can actually recover your infrastructure as soon as possible. So, this, so this, is, this is what we do. That's the models that we are building. Right. So somehow this connects to what people on the ground are actually doing. So you've got emergency services people, you've got town councils, you've got power generation utilities, you've got the emergency or the various other parties involved. So yeah. are you help, is this helping them to coordinate their activity and so that the right people are in the right place to make the best difference to the problem? Exactly, exactly. So basically we tell them, you know, this is what we are suggesting to you. So, you know, repair those lines or preposition your, 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 your tracks uh, at those positions uh, because this is, this is where the damage is going to be maximal and therefore, you know, you better be positioned there. So to give you an example, you know, when I, so, so when Hurricane Irene in the United States was, was, was hitting, so one of my friends in Pennsylvania was calling me and asking me, oh, I see trucks moving from Pennsylvania to New York and New England. Is this your algorithm recommending that? So this is the kind of thing that the algorithm would do. They would tell you, oh, you need more trucks, so please bring them there because we, need, we will need to do much more repairs. 
that is actually feasible given your current, you know, uh, repair crews. So yes, that's what the algorithm are going to do. They're going to tell you know where you allocate your asset and where and where and, and where not to be as much as where you should be, I guess as well. Exactly, exactly. Of course, of course, exactly. So you don't want to be just at the center of the hurricane and have essentially your supply or your you know your stockpile being destroyed. And yeah, you want to move them out. And this is obviously something that's really important. I grew up Pascal in Townsville. I've actually just come home from there in Queensland where we oh, yes. get very, very big cyclones. So it's something yes. that we're very familiar with. And I know for my family um, who have family friends who went through Cyclone Tracy in Darwin, which was a very, very nasty cyclone, obviously, that they still to this day, years and years later, are very, very frightened whenever they hear that cyclone's coming. And the most important thing from from my family's perspective and from us growing up is, is to have that reliable information so that we can make informed choices. I think people uh, have, have sometimes been accused of being blasé about the idea of cyclones, but because... Because we have seen some very large ones recently, I think having access to that information and to be able to get that reliable information out to the public is so very, very important so that they can make informed decisions. So it's something that is has real, real practical importance for a lot of people. Yes, I, I agree. I think, you know, having been into one of these hurricanes as well and, and having, you know, been without power for four or five days, I think, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I understand all this. I think it's very important. I, I think what you have to understand is that the technology in the last 10 years has really progressed tremendously. And we can give a lot more information and the decision makers can make much better decisions these days than they could 10 years ago. And I think that's, you know, from a technology standpoint, when you see this is one of the things that is the most rewarding for us. Uh, we can actually tell people, we can give much more information, we can recommend much better decisions, and it's actually used to make a difference in practice. So. So when you are a researcher and you see your research being deployed like this, this is you know, probably the most rewarding experience ever. And do you anticipate that that reliability will keep getting better? As you say, for, forecasting of big weather systems has got better, but it's still a long, long way from perfect. Do you expect that that, that, that rate of improvement in the precision of our ability to forecast things and predict things is going to keep improving? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I was mentioning before that you know, hurricane production and cyclone prediction has improved by a factor of... of, of of 50% so we can predict twice as, you know, uh, two days before instead of one day before or four days before instead of two days before. So that will continue. The models are getting better. And also what you have to understand is that the world now, we have a lot more data available. And I think that makes a huge difference. So before, you know, in a sense, some of these models were just informed by the physics and, you know, the terrain and the, the atmosphere and the, the you know, but now we have real-time data coming in, and they can refine the models. They can make them more precise. They can they, they can they can use a variety of sources of information, and these models are going to get better and better over time. Yes, absolutely. And the, the algorithms for exploiting their results, showing what you can do, is is also going to get better and better. So I think yes, definitely. I think this is an area where you will see a lot of progress, and uh, we need that progress. Yes, and the voice you're hearing is Pascal Hentenrich. Oh here on Fuzzy Logic and Pascal is the research leader of the optimization group at the IT research labs called NICTA who do a lot of amazing things NICTA you mentioned um, big data as well um, what, what is big data because that, that's hitting the news a lot at the moment so I think big data is, uh, is, is essentially the fact that we know live in a world where we have a lot of information about a lot of different things so what, the, what people do 
what the infrastructure, what is happening in the infrastructure, and we have all these data, which is at, you know at our fingertips. So we, we we can exploit. We, so let's let's look at you know let's look at what is happening. Let's say on the transportation system, we can we know essentially we can actually use the information about what is happening in the whole transportation system right now. We have all the data that is available. You know, you take the power system, we can actually instrument it in such a way that we know exactly what everybody is consuming at every one time. So we, we live in a world where now that yeah, essentially real-time information is, is available over, you know, for everything. And so big data is, a world, is, is the world which is trying to, to, to capture the fact that there is this, you know, massive amount of data, real-time data that we can exploit, that we can tap into to actually make better decisions on better recommendation or get a better understanding of, of how the world is working or that the infrastructure are working. And so that's fascinating for, you know, for scientists. This is like, wow, you know, now we have, you know, we have, we have all this data that we can start tapping into for yes, you know, the, doing better things. The, the, the parallel of, of a crude sort is that it's a kind of instrumentation. It's a kind of measuring of what's going on in our in our physical and our uh, in our civilization, and we we seem to be drawing more and more senses, more and more information, and, and trying to find ways of processing all of this stuff and using it to control our environment as much as we can. Um, now, speaking of Biggie, you also mentioned, or, or I was reading notes before our interview, and you mentioned Los Alamos. Now, that's a really <laughs> that's a place that, that really has a great resonance for people. What, how are you involved with Los Alamos? So, Los Alamos essentially is this uh, big research center in the United States, and um, they have so historically, well, you know the history, right? So the the, the Manhattan Project was there. They developed, you know, the atomic bomb. But they are they are a big energy, essentially, research center, and they are also doing a lot of research in disaster management and and places like this. This is like this is a very interesting town. So it's a town, you know, only of scientists, and 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 they basically look at problems that are critical for you know energy disaster management and all kinds of things in 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 the United States. And working with them is like it's it's a unique place because you you have you have physicists, mathematicians, you know, computer scientists all in one place talking you know talking about these problems. And it's very stimulating to go there and, and work with people there. And they have also a lot of connection with different agencies in the United States. So they have access to a lot of very interesting problems and so we love working with them. And they came to us, you know, to, to work on this disaster management initially. So it's a very interesting place to be, in a sense, when you work with these people, and we try to continue collaboration with them on smart buildings and smart grids and things like this. So it seems like NICTA has its fingers in so many pies. It's a really interesting, dynamic kind of organisation. Can you tell us about some of the other uh, programmes that uh, NICTA is doing? Yeah, so NICTA is this uh, is a very dynamic and agile place, focusing on on ICT, and and basically it's organized around six or seven research group, and you know optimization is one of them. But you have a big machine learning group, uh, very linked to uh, to uh, to big data and things like this. And what what the machine learning group is trying to do is you know uh, learn all the you know of things work. So, for instance, uh, you know, there is this big geothermal project which is trying to see, you know, where are the, you know, the, 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 the thermal sources of energy in Australia and find the best way to exploit them. 
uh, or finding how you can actually maintain, you know, best, you know, some of the infrastructure by finding out where, you know, the, the, the infrastructure is aging the, fast, the fastest. So that's another big group at, at NICTA, very, very uh, stellar group. Another group which, is, uh, which has some amazing results is the, the, the software system group, and they build this secure operating system. So the operating system is like the brain of a computer, right? So it's the kernel of the computer. And they have, the, they have this secure operating system, which has been verified correctly. You know, it's, it's verified, it's correct, and it's basically used on billions and billions of devices, phones, and things like this. So that's one of the big, you know, results that uh, NICTA had. So it's also a very, uh, it's a very strong group inside NICTA. Uh, we have also groups in networking, obviously, in, you know, control systems, uh, in, in computer vision. So it's a very, very active, you know, very active place where you have all these very exciting projects with links to each other, right? So some of the, the things that they do in computer vision and machine learning, we are also using inside some of the applications that my group is actually working on. So. Uh, it's a very dynamic place, pushing the, the frontiers of the technology everywhere. Yes, yes, indeed. And in fact, uh, we have a, a really strong association with Nikta here on Fuzzy Logic. And I also brought in a story about a, a kind of electronic circuit that can be placed on a person's skin. And this sort of relates to an event we've got coming up, which I been promoting in August, on the 18th of August, the rise of cyborgs and post-human beings. And it's about the blend of humans and technology, what we're doing to our bodies with the technology. And just before we went live, Pascal, you were saying you were thinking about writing an article on human intelligence and machine intelligence blending in some way. What, what were you thinking there? So, so, yeah, so in a sense, you know, when I, so one of the things that, you know, drew me to research is the fact that I read these books about, you know, machine intelligence and the relationship with human intelligence when I was, you know, really young. And so I read these books and at the time, you know, it was like, you know, oh, you know, if a computer, you know, could beat, you know, the world champion in chess, that would mean that computers are really smart. And you see, but that was like 30 years ago, right? So it's a long time. And now, you know, obviously, you know, you know, computers are world champions and computers now can drive a car, right? So completely automatically. Uh, in California, you know, there was one car that actually drove for about a year without any accident. Actually, there was an accident, but that was, the, you know, the fault of another driver. So in a sense, in a sense, the, the, the way computers have evolved is completely different now. It's basically they can do things that we could never imagine that they would do. And so this is kind of, you know, the, the, the question of what is machine intelligence has changed tremendously over time. And there are, there are a couple of very nice books these days on how, you know, humans and machine can actually work together much, much better these days. And that's basically the future. How can you actually make machine and humans work on, on being, you know, doing tasks that would, would leverage the cognitive abilities of humans and, and leverage the, the computational abilities of machines. So I think, I think what I would like to convey is the fact that this relationship between man and machine is changing tremendously over, the time, over time. Do, do you see this as machine intelligence replacing human intelligence? In some aspects, yes, right? So I think, you know, we, the you know, machine is computing much faster than, than, than we do. But in a sense, humans have also unique capabilities that machines have very difficult, have a lot of difficulties doing, although, you know, they're moving. It's always very difficult to make predictions because every time we make a prediction, then a machine actually at some point is able to actually do some of these tasks. So, so, so the difference between humans and machine has been narrowing. 
But in a sense, there are things that, that we are very good at doing that machines are not, are still very far from doing. We, we are very good at recognizing patterns very quickly and making links very quickly between different things at this point. But that doesn't mean that machine won't be able to do them later on, right? So it's very difficult to make, make this prediction. But I think, you know, there are different, there are still have different strengths. And, and in a sense, I think, you know, what, what would be nice is to show some of these things. And there are some books there, you know, trying to articulate some of these things as well. Well, but I think it's, yeah, yeah, right. Do, do, we, do we want machine intelligence to replace human intelligence? So I think we probably don't want machines replacing human judgments, and because that's that's very you know. That, so what what I think is important is that you know there is all. I think what is what machine can do very well is analyze a huge amount of things very quickly, give you very interesting insights on a lot of different things that are happening that would be very difficult for us to do. What what what. What is very diff what is very unique in, in, in the human condition is that you look at these things and then you make some judgment values, right? And so I think that's a, and, and you have to make decisions that are very that are that are basically have an impact on a, on, on a society, whether it's a small community or a larger community. And so those things I think are really are really very delicate. And that's where, you know, sometimes the machine can inform, you know, the human decision process. But at the end of the day, there is a human making a decision or, you know, a, set of, you know, a large collection of humans making those decisions. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yes. And is it the human is augmented or enhanced by the ability of you to use computing power? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, exactly. So I think we, we, we are in a position where we can actually leverage our cognitive abilities tremendously, but, but at the end of the day, it's basically leveraging, basically enhancing, as you said, our abilities, our cognitive abilities to make better decisions, better, you know, uh, yeah, better decision basically. You said that computers are obviously fantastic at processing large amounts of data, and that's something that you were talking about using in your work all the time, that the amount of data that you look at would have just been pretty much impossible for people to look at and do the maths on themselves. So that's yep. a strength for computers. What do you think is still in the long term going to be the big weakness of computers and computers being intelligent? What are they bad at? So, so yeah, so it's, once again, you know, I, I, I want to be very cautious here because, you know, well, no... Let's say five or six years ago, nobody would have, I would not have bet that a computer could actually drive a car on the roads of California, right? So the fact that a computer cannot do these things these days is, is pretty amazing, okay? But I still think there are a lot of things that we do much better. We, we, we can view different, we, we have a global view of everything in a sense, right? So, so computers are still, they do, they do various tasks, but very, it's still, they don't necessarily see the big picture. They don't necessarily correlate different things together easily, right? So they, they, people also talk about creativity, but creativity is very difficult to define. And, and you could talk about computer creativity as well. But we, we do we make links between the various different things, between the different different um, between different topics, different different domains, very much better. We can recognize patterns in a much better fashion as well. And and then there is all you know all all what makes us human, right? So the you know how we react to things, how we feel about things, and how we want to evolve as a society, right? So these are completely unique to the human condition, right? Okay, well with that we're running to a close of our session here on fuzzy logic, and we've been listening to 
Pascal Hinton. Rick, thank you very much, Pascal, for your time this morning. It's fascinating to talk to you. And next time I take a bowl of cereal out of uh, the cupboard, I'll, uh, I'll be thinking of the work of people like yourself. And thank you, Rod. Thank you, Rod. Thank you for having me. Interesting stuff. And today in the Canberra Times, we've, our Ask Fuzzy column was, how is it that our uh, piece, of piece of technology, how do touch screens and our mobile phones work? It's a fairly subtle thing. Next week, we've got a story on honey, <laughs> what, what actually goes into honey, what sort of sugars are in it. Fascinating bit of chemistry. And I think maybe next week we have a special guest from the Department of Chemistry from the ANU. We shall see. But uh, some things that they've been working on is ways to produce electricity uh, artificially using synthetic photosynthesis. Synthetic photosynthesis. Yes, to produce hydrogen gas, which can then be burnt and uh, or used into a fuel cell. So there we go. And don't forget, sign up for our event coming up on uh, in Science Week. The Rise of Cyborgs and Post-Human Being, 18th of August, Sunday, 2pm. You can get your tickets online. And with that, it's time to say goodbye and thanks for your company today. Enjoy the rest of your time. Catch you later.